We're living in incredible times, and that is an understatement. But we're living in significant times. Now, if there's anything that I've learned since I began to walk with the Savior, I've learned the incredible importance there is on focus. Peter discovered that one day when he heard the voice of the master calling him out, out of the boat. In the middle of the storm, he was numbered with those who were fearing for their life. And then I don't know what possessed Peter. In between the thunderclaps and the waves that were hitting the gunnel in the sides of the boat, courage came into his heart. That's what happens when you catch a glimpse of Jesus in your storm. Suddenly in the storm, he saw something he had never seen before. And when he saw him in the midst of his storm, he said, Lord, if that's you, call me out and bid me to come. Now that's a strange request. I think I would have said, if that's you, stop the storm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. Hey, if that's you, stop the rain. Stop the mess. How many have ever prayed those prayers? Lord, if you're anywhere near this prayer, just stop what's going on. If that's you, bid me to come to me, is an indication of something that was in the depths of his spirit that he longed for when he saw what he was manifesting in a storm. He saw him above a storm. And when he captured a victorious Christ who was not affected by the storm he was so afraid of, he said, that's what I want. And if that's you, bring me into that dimension. And Jesus said one word, come. And on that one word, how I many know just one word will transform where you are, from where you are to places you never thought. And that's my, pr my prayer is that you could not just hear me. If you could just hear one word today. Yeah. that has your name on it, that will go past your ears, past mm -hmm. that mechanism, and get somewhere lodged into your spirit. It's a game changer. And Peter climbed down out of the ship, and he began, it says, and he went to Jesus. That's what it said. He went to Jesus, which goes to show what he was after. And as he went to Jesus, he didn't realize it, that the very storm he was afraid of, he was walking on top of. But then his focus shifted. As long as his focus was on a victorious Christ in the middle of his dilemma, it translated for him a victorious walk. But the moment he got his eyes off of him 
And I got a, re I got a feeling. I, now, this is not in the Bible. But I'm thinking, man, you're doing so good, Peter. You're walking on the word, really. You're above the storm. But I have a, I mean, I've walked a little bit in life. I got a feeling there were some voices coming from behind him who wasn't walking like he's walking, who were probably yelling, hey, Peter, watch the wave on your left. <laughs> hey, there's one on the right. What are you doing? Get back in this boat. You ever have people wanting you to get back in the boat? Because they're stuck in the boat? And you are trying to brave a new way and you're trying to walk in dimensions and there are relationships wanting to pull you back, pull you back into your confusion and into your mess. I got a feeling there were 11 voices. Come on. You got to watch the voices. People can be well-meaning, but that doesn't mean they're ordained of God to speak into your life. Got to watch the voices. And suddenly it says, when he saw the waves. And when he saw, and that word saw is not a passing look, that means a gaze. When he began to focus on what was threatening him, it says he began to sink. The difference between him overcoming a storm and coming under the power of a storm was a shift of focus. That's it. And suddenly he becomes a sinking man. And he's going under as the storms of life are piling in all around him. And he cries out, Lord, save me! And it says immediately, Jesus came and picked him up. And it says, and they went back to the ship. Now I'm going to tell you what Jesus didn't do. He didn't pick him up and throw him on his back. He wanted to be saved. And you know how Jesus interpreted saving him? By restoring him to a victorious walk. The storm never ceased until they got in the ship. Because Peter thought he was in the storm. Jesus knew he was in school. This was a school. He just was in the curriculum that was the class on storms. How to walk in a storm. He thought he's in the storm. Jesus, no man, you're in school. I'm going to teach you on how to walk through storms. And you're not going to know until you're in the middle of a storm. And you're going to know what causes you to sink in storms. I mean, he was constantly, Jesus was a living, walking, breathing school of the kingdom of God. They were confused so many times with how he moved, what he said, what he did. But how many know they stayed in school? Turn to your neighbor and say, stay in school. You may not understand the class you're in. You may not understand the curriculum you're on. Stay in school. Don't drop out. You stay in school. Because I learned something. 
You fail a test, you'll get it again. And again, and again, until you learn how to pass that test. Come on now. And Jesus, he said, save me, Lord. Save me. I'm a man going under. Save me from the storm. And Jesus interpreted how to save somebody by restoring them back to their walk. And they walked back. And the moment they got in the ship, it says, and the storm ceased. Why? Class was over. <laughs> the bell rang. Until the next time they went fishing. Yeah, the next time they, they, Jesus said, let's go. <laughs> let's go to the other side, it says, and he constrained them to get in the boat. You know what they said? Not this class, Lord. We're cutting this class. No, no. We want Jim right now. We want Jim right now. Jesus said, no, I got another class. Get back. It's, it's, we're going to do a little boating today, fellas. <laughs> but what I learned today, and I am just want to encourage you, we are living in a day where there are so many things that could rob your focus. You can't watch the news but two minutes, and before you know it, you're going to start sinking. Because we got troubles on every side. We're in a state of emergency in America. We are living in the midst of a death fall. There's only one hope for this country, a sovereign sweeping move of God. Listen, I don't care who gets in that White House. It's beyond that. I mean, I do care, but it's beyond that. Congress isn't going to save us. I live 20 miles from my house to the White House. And you know what I learned? There's more hope in my house because in my house, there's a man and a woman that knows how to spend time on God, with God on their knees. The hope of this country, not in the White House, in the church house. It's in the church house. And judgment must begin in the house of God. I'm telling you right now. But my focus isn't on the storm. My focus is that there's a God in the midst of it all. And his word is true. And his kingdom is increasing. And I want to encourage you, no matter what you're facing, it may not be issues of America, it may be just your world. And it doesn't really matter. I'm telling you, there's a Christ who's greater than every storm. Can you say amen? And I'm telling you, we're knocking on the greatest days that are before us. Darkness covers the world and gross darkness the people. But he said, but I will arise upon you and my glory will be seen upon you. God does his best work in the darkest of times. Hallelujah. Why? Because it says God is light. Hey, when is light so great? When there's no light at all. Even in the midst of the darkest times, a little flickering candle can help you out. Can you say amen? Glory to God. Jesus said, so let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It is time for the ecclesia. It is time for the church to arise and shine. Can you say amen? Yeah. Oh, yes, it is.
I want to go in a direction that God's placed in my heart while we were worshiping Ditra. I was going to go in another direction. This is what happens to me. I think I know the direction, and then I step into an environment, and we're in worship, and I, the Holy Spirit is, and I've learned enough that i got to follow what God wants me to say. Uh, 2013, that year, I had an experience with God. This is born out of that experience, what I'm about to share with you. 2013, I was living in Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, back then, Karen was not feeling well at all. She was, she was not doing well. I was traveling. And as it, as it was, I'd come home and take care of, you know, home issues and business and chores only to leave. I was just leaving then on the weekends. My mom at the time would stay overnight on the weekends and be there for Karen. And at this time, it was, it was in the springtime of 20, I forget the date, but it was uh, 20, uh, what year, 2013. And so I was getting ready to put out porch furniture. That's what I was doing. And so I was freshening up. We had wicker furniture, and I was, we had a detached garage, two-car garage, 10 feet, 15 feet from the house, A-frame, but it was a storage place. It had a, just a roof, sides, studs, and a poured concrete floor, and I stored everything in there, and I made a makeshift. I had this new paint sprayer, and I was spray-painting my furniture to freshen it up to put it on the porch for the summertime. But I was just mindful of getting things done because I had to leave the next day I was traveling out of town. So I'm just trying to get everything done. You know, I've got paint on me. I'm learning how to spray. I think I got more paint on me than I did the chair, you know. So I just set this makeshift thing up in that detached garage. And I'm spraying and I went outside and when I walked in, when I walked in and I got nothing on my mind, I'm, I'm not thinking about the book of Revelation. I'm not thinking about Matthew. I'm thinking about painting that chair. But when I walked in, God was there to meet me. I was immediately struck with a sense of the manifestation of God's presence immediately. And it was just me and him. And in a moment... I had a vision. And in this vision, this room was finished. And what, I mean, it was a storage room. But I saw it completely changed. And I saw like a prayer chamber and a library. And I saw me on my face. And I was just in a depth of intercession. I could tell in this vision, like in a flash. And I heard the Lord say this. If you will build me a meeting place, he said, I'm going to break your heart for this nation and give you a word for your generation. That's what I heard. I got on my knees and I grabbed an exposed stud. They were all exposed. There was no sheetrock. I grabbed the stud. And I said, I dedicate this place to become a place that will be a meeting place. For me and God. And by the grace of God, within a number of months, it was transformed. It wasn't multi-purpose, one purpose. 
every square inch of that room, if I just went in that room to do something, it was like the wall said, stay and pray. It was just dedicated to meet with God, to study his word, to pray. And I didn't realize what a need it would meet in my life. I didn't know what was on the road ahead. I didn't know what my, life, my wife would experience. And at night, that became my place. During the day, I was home taking care of things, but now I could be 15 feet from the house, still be there, but I might as well have been a 1,000 miles away. I walked into another dimension. I lived in that room for the next two and a half years. I met with God. I'd be there 10, 11 o'clock at night usually. Be there through to early in the morning, get, get back in the house. I can't put into words all that God wanted to do in me. And I didn't realize that he was preparing me for phases of my life that I had no idea was up ahead. But one of the things that he began to work deeply in my heart and in my spirit was he deepened my understanding of the life of Jesus. He deepened my understanding, not, so, not, not, not focusing so much on the lordship of Christ. How many know he's on the throne this morning? But on the sonship of Christ. And for three and a half years, the word becoming flesh, because in that dimension, he left an example for us all. And he provided a means, evidence, a testimony, how that through his death and resurrection, he was going to be able to provide us to come into a place so that as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk as he walked. That he was going to leave footprints, Brother Carter, and open up a way for mankind to walk in a union with God that's beyond what Adam had in a garden. What I've gained in Christ is far greater than what I lost in Adam. He didn't come and put a band-aid on the problem. It's not God's nature. He does exceeding abundantly above. God doesn't fix things so that it's repaired from being broken. He makes it new. So that even if you've got something good, he can make it greater still. Only God can do that. We don't have that ability. With our limited ability, we restore broken things. God makes broken things into new things. And he'll give you what you never had. He'll give you something greater after the brokenness that's greater than what you had before you ever got broken. Come on. This is the greatness of our God. And God began to open up some things to me. And as a result of opening up time with him, it began to birth within me a hunger.
and a desire to want what he made available. The first question recorded in the Bible that God ever asked. Now, it's important. We're talking the omniscient God. A God that has all knowledge all the time and is never at any time lacking or deficient in any aspect of knowledge. That's why he declares the end from the beginning. He declared your future before you ever had a history. Before you ever came out of the womb and your infantile cries announced your own birth, he already gave you a whole lifespan, a plan, and a purpose. We were created unto good works, which he had foreordained that I should walk in them. Before I ever did a good work, works were waiting for me to do them. I mean, this is our God. That's why we should be able to live in rest. Come on. I'm not here trying to figure out my life. I can't figure out my life. I'm here trying to fellowship with God and fulfill my life. And so this is our God. And yet we find the omniscient, all-knowing God, never deficient in any knowledge, asking a question. And you know what that question was? Adam, where are you? Now, God didn't ask Adam where he was because the GPS wasn't working in the morning, you know. You ever have that rerouting, rerouting, rerouting? No, no, no. God didn't have a little memory lapse. Now, where did I put him in that garden? Where is this guy? No, 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 no. Adam had committed an act of treason and disobedience. And as a result, changes took place in Adam that we call the fall. And the same man that transgressed also became a religious man that started the first religion and through his own works tried to cover his own nakedness. So you got to understand, we have, ex we have inherited two natures from Adam. The sinner and the religious man. And I'm going to tell you something. I've learned something about weeds. Some weeds have longer roots than other weeds. And it's a lot easier for a sinner to get saved than a religious man to be free from religion. That root goes a long way. And I say religion. I'm just talking about looking to anything we can do to make ourselves right before God. But God says, Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking for information. It was a question for Adam to consider, where are you? Philip, where are you? James, where are you? Where are you? It was the question. And Adam said, I heard your voice and I was afraid. That beautiful voice that Adam used to fellowship with. But now I heard it. And I was afraid. And I hid myself. Because I was naked. Now, how many know God's looking at a man with a loincloth? Made of fig leaves. I don't care what you're wearing. How many know if you're covered, you're covered. But in the presence of God, he knew his covering was completely insufficient. And all your religion, everything, all your cover-up, 
He said, I'm a naked man because your eyes can look right through. And here's what God said. Next question. These questions are very important because they're questions that at some point come to every one of our lives. The next question is, who told you? In other words, what God was locating was this. You're now getting your information from another source. Because before that, God was his only source of information to give him interpretation of all of life. But now he's eating from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, independent of God, and it has become what's interpreting his frame of mind for life. Oh, yeah. That's what's happening today. That's what's happening today. That's just, what do you think is happening in the school? It's a tree of life. Not a tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And how many know it's literally giving children lenses? Hey, wear these. Put those lenses on. And now it skews your vision of family, marriage, everything you look at, the lenses that were given to you will give the interpretation. When God ordained us to have one lens, and that is God's word. That's why the renewal of the mind and the restructuring of our mind is the most significant work for a believer. We're transformed by the renewal of our mind. God wants to restore and give us new lenses. It's called the kingdom of God. Amen. And so, Adam, where are you? Who told you? Where are you getting your assessments from? And I remember that God was just making real to me of what he has made available in the, in the dimension of sonship. And he showed me that the life that poured out of Jesus was not because he was a prophet. Yes, he was. He was a teacher. Yes, he was. He was the great shepherd. Yes, he was. But they were job descriptions. But he did not walk as those things. He walked and lived as a son. His constant reference was his father. The son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the father do, that he does. And he was immersed in a mindset of sonship. And so the scripture says, and as many of you as have received him, he has given now you power to become sons of God. The most important, and I'm talking to women, this is not gender specific. 
It has to do with position. How many know I'm called to be a bride? It has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with the revelation of what that communicates. Intimacy and union. But sonship, and some of the greatest sons have been women that I met. Sonship communicates a number of things. Most importantly, reflecting the image of the father. He looks just like his father. Because the seed has given birth to you and has given you a whole new DNA. And you've been, as the Bible says, born of God. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. I can't help but to be an overcomer. Why? Because a seed, a divine seed gave birth to me 40-some years ago, October 15th. 1978, kneeling to the right side of an altar in a Pentecostal church, a divine seed entered my spirit. And a transaction occurred. I became born again. It's not a second chance at life. It's not a do-over. It's a new birth. Hallelujah. Wow. And the whole process of that birth then after that is then to grow up and to be like him. That birthed me. This is the great work of the Holy Spirit in all of our lives. But the dimension what I want to present today is that there was this dimension in the life of Jesus where the word said, John chapter 1, verse 32, and I want you to listen to scripture. It said, and John bare record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove. Watch this. And it abode on him. And I began to see everywhere he went, he was a man with a dove. As Pentecostal people, we celebrate when the dove lands on somebody. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You remember when the dove landed on you? I remember when the dove landed on me the same night. Remember when the dove landed on my sister? Man, we got filled with the Holy Ghost, and we celebrate that. And that's wonderful. But the real question is, is the dove abiding on you? That describes a lot. That's the question. And I began to see because in the life of Jesus, he did everything he did because the dove was on him. He lived his way in such a life that he never disturbed the dove. He was so consciously aware of that, that dove, see the littlest thing who caused the dove to get fluttered. And, but Jesus lived in such a way that he was consciously aware that he carried a dove. And because he valued the dove and because he made provision for the dove, the dove maintained an anointing for him to do what he had to do. And I began to see the life of a man with a dove. And began, God began to show me. And he said, and that's what I called for your life. Men may call you this. Men may call you that. Men may call you this. And that's great. But as far as what you need to see, you need to see, I've called you to be a man with a dove. Yeah. 
That, that's the flow. And here's what the word is in the New Testament. Ready? Here's what the word is. Abide. Abide. So Jesus said these words. We're going to get there. Abide in me. Abide is a powerful word. It means to habitually make your habitation. If you will habitually abide in me, make me your habitation. The same way a branch can't bear fruit of itself except it abides. A branch doesn't produce fruit. It displays it. It's the invisible life in the tree that manifests visible fruit that will give sustenance to somebody. All the branch is called to do is let it hang. I can't bear fruit. He's not looking for me to produce fruit. It's the fruit of another life in me. He's just calling my life to be a branch so that people can pluck and the hungry can come near me and say, I can get something from his life that will give me strength. But son, if the branch is going to offer fruit, it's got to abide in the vine. So the only responsibility you have is a habitual living in me, my presence, my will, my, your focus is me. Live in me. Get it. Get that word. For I am the vine. You're the branches. He that lives in me. And if I could live and continually abide in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You'll be an empty branch. You'll be a stripped branch. There'll be no fruit on your life. It's not what you could do. It's not by the sweat of your religion. It's not by the determination of your spirit. It's by you abiding in me and making the union, your union, what I made possible. Your sin separated you from God. But I made possible. I died so you could abide. I died so you could have a union with the Father. This is the key. Say, so it's not one of the keys. It's the key to everything. Comes back to abiding. Because everything is once again born out of relationship. Don't worry about your calling. You can't help but to fulfill it when you're abiding. Don't worry about what you should do in the future. You can't help but to walk in it when you're abiding now. Abiding. Is this making a little sense? All right. He goes on to say then, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit that you would display a lot of fruit. This is what really glorifies the Father and then so shall you be my disciples. And then John 
years later, writes these words before he passes. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Wow, that's the verse that got me. That's the word that drove me into a pursuit of God like I had never had. Because John was talking all about abiding, abiding in fruit, and abiding in fruit, and the results abiding. But the aged John said, I got the key. The key is this. If you say you're abiding in him, then you've got to walk as he walked because I uncovered the secret of his life. What was the secret of Jesus' life? He abided in the Father. He let nothing. He was in such union with the Father in the days of his flesh, and he made the provision that as he abided, so now you could abide. Hallelujah. So what I'm saying, life churches, in this day and in this hour, where everything to the right and left of us has gone crazy, God wants to raise up in the midst a church, a quality of believer that will shine brilliantly in the midst of such darkness. And in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the problems, there is a people, Daniel said, and they that know their God. When he saw it prophetically, he prophesied. Some of the greatest end time prophecies come from the book of Daniel. He prophesied of the governments that would come, the success of world orders, and how this little rock would come during a time of the ten toes that were a mixture of clay and iron, speaks of the ten emperors of Rome. And in the time of the Roman Empire and the ten toes, this little rock that was cut out of a mountain without hands, meaning it's a sovereign work of God, would strike in Rome. The whole system would fall down, that the empires of man would fall apart. They'll exist for a time, but they'll fall apart. But that little stone, keep your eye on the stone because it'll grow and it grows and it grows. And he says it's the kingdom of God until it becomes a great mountain and fills all the earth while the governments of men fall. They live and fall, rise and fall. There's this mountain that's growing called the kingdom of God. Yeah. He prophesied that 800 years before there was ever a little babe in a manger. But he also said these words in light of that prophetic awareness. And they that know their God. And the word know means to know intimately. Think union. And they that are abiding shall be mighty. And shall do great exploits. Hallelujah. And so with that, I, I would like you to turn to an Old Testament story real quick. I'm going to make it quick. 2 Kings 4. 2 Kings 4. Because I want to show you something I think that has some meaning to us today. 2 Kings 4. So anyway... As you're talking, God's making all this real to me. 
I preach at a convention. There was 5,000 people at this convention. Great convention. It's down south somewhere. And I had to get back home to where I lived in Pennsylvania. And I needed a haircut desperately. So I made an appointment for my haircut because I was leaving then to cross country. This is 2016 now. And I'm going to preach in different places across the country. And I'm going to meet and preach at a convention in Los Angeles. Then I'm going to go into Tecate, Mexico. And I'm going to preach in Mexico. Then I'm going to come across the country again. I was going to be gone over 30 days. Then I'm going to be home. I'm going to be home for three days. And then I'm going to go to Florida. And I was going to preach in six cities in Florida. And I was just, I mean, it was an incredible time. I wasn't home for two years on a weekend. On a weekend. When I buried my wife, my car was packed. And I left with my nephew to New York and preached that weekend. And according to prophecy, that was a prophesied of me. I was not back home for two years on a weekend. I mean, just doors were blasting open. Anyway, I preached that convention. Came home, had to get a haircut. And they came, and I had a dilemma because they said the girl that cuts my hair had a medical procedure. So they said, Phil, they know, they know me and know I'm a Christian, know I'm a preacher. So I said, so Phil, can you make an appointment next week? I said, well, no, I can't. I'm leaving, I'm leaving to go across country. And uh, by the time I come back, I'll look like Jesus Christ. I need a haircut. <laughs> she goes, well, you know, Kristen, Kristen's, she's, she's taking the appointments. I said, all right, I have no choice. So Kristen comes out, and Kristen has a little blue, a little green, and a little orange. My Catholic roots came up, and I went like that. I <laughs> Whoa. So, okay, and it's very different, brother, that, I mean, that's not this kind of shop, but okay. And the moment I greeted Kristen and she said hello, I was so convicted because the moment I heard a voice, I knew she was tender. And it's like God said, man, look at the pond, the outward. So Kristen washes my hair. I sit in the seat and, you know, so I'm, you know, and she's just, I said, so are you from around here? No, no, I'm not from around here. This is in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So I said, are you? No, no, I'm not from around here. And I tell her, you know, well, what do you do? I heard you're, you're going to be leaving. I said, yeah, well. I said, well, Kristen, you know, I said, I got the greatest job in the world. Really? And I could see her in the mirror, a full-length mirror, the way they set it up. And she says, well, what do you do? I said, well, I tell a love story. And by that time, Kristen's like, oh, I don't know what this guy is all about, you know. Like, <laughs> I really, I said, I tell a love story. I go to countries and I tell a love story. And then they interpret the story. And they, I say, you know how it begins? She goes, no, how's it begin? I said, for God so loved the world. And with that, I even finished it. She's going, <laughs> and she kept wiping her eyes. And it was obvious that, and all of a sudden, I'm telling you, we were, we were enveloped in the presence. People cutting hair, but we might as well have been the only ones in the shop. And all of a sudden, Kristen starts telling me her life. And within a few minutes, her face is right here. I said, I'd like to pray for you. And she leans over. I said, give me your hand. I'm praying for her. And she's crying. And when I left... I went in my car, and I just wept. 
And here's why I wept. I said, Lord, two days ago, I preached at a conference of 5,000 people. But what I just felt was so far greater than being on that platform. This is what I long for. This is what I want. You know what the Lord told me? Because he was making this real thing. He goes, well, Chris did. No, she cut the hair of a man that had a dove. And the Lord said to me, son, it's the power of the dove. Man, I was a mess. I was a mess. He said, it's not, you don't have to do anything. Just value the dove. Just value the dove. Walk like you know there's a dove on you. Walk carefully. Just like you're handling something of great value. The dove does the work. And that's just not for the preacher. It's for the housewife. It's for the mechanic. It's for every member of the body. God is waiting to be poured out through your lives. We all have our callings, and there's value to that. But it's not in the power of your job description. It's as a son. So if we could just quickly read this story, I'm going to just give you something that I feel is of value. I feel his presence. I really do. I... 2 Kings 4 and verse 8. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, and there was a great woman. And she constrained him to eat bread, and so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. Verse 9. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passes by us continually. Verse 10, let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool, a candlestick, and it shall be when he comes to us, this is where he's going to turn, right here. Go to verse 12. And then the prophet said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him in verse 13. He said to her, now, you have been so careful providing all this care for us. Okay. What can I do for you? Just the prophet. What can I do for you? Would you like for me to speak your name before the king? I know the king. Do you want me to drop your name? Or maybe you want me to speak to the captain of the host. I know a few people in high places that I could. No. And verse 14, and he said, then what's to be done for her? Oh, she said, I dwell among my own people. In other words, what she said is, I'm very content with being among my people. I don't need the king to know me. I don't need the captain of the host to know me. So then he says, but Gehazi says these words. She doesn't have a child. 
and our husband is old. He said, will you call her? And when he called the door, verse 16, he said about this season, according to the time of life, he starts to prophesy, you're going to embrace a son. Now watch her. She said, nay, man of my Lord, thou man of God, don't lie to me. Now I'm going to tell you why she said that. Because when he put a finger on her barren condition, what he was touching was a lifetime of disappointments. You know how many times she thought she was pregnant? That's why she said, don't you dare lie to me. I've learned how to live with that disappointment. And God knows how to get right to the issues. There must have been times, maybe she had miscarriages, I don't know. But the moral of this story is this. God wanted to heal her barren condition. And God wants to heal the barren condition of the church in America. We're bigger, we're techie, we got a lot of stuff, all good, we're barren. We're barren compared to the harvest that's out there. We're not seeing the kind of deliverances. We're not seeing the kinds of salvations. We're not, this, is not, this is not a criticism. This is an identification of something we need God to do. And God is stirring up a hunger where we're saying, God, we're not satisfied. Because I read in the book what's supposed to happen through a life that's in union with you. And I ain't saying it. And I'm not going to cover it anymore. We've got a situation. It's a desperate hour. Come on. This is where God is bringing us to. And this woman, she said, don't you lie to me. I've just learned how to live with barrenness. And now here you come, putting your finger on the very area. And he gives a word from the Lord. He said, well, your barren days are over this time next year. I'm going to produce it. Your husband can't produce it anymore. He's old. Isn't it amazing God wants to bring things in our lives when we are beyond being able to do it ourselves? He waits till every resource is done. He waits till you're too old, you're too broke, you're too discouraged, you're too everything that would disqualify you from doing the very thing you believe God wants to do. God said, good, now you're ready because I'm going to do it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to wait until Abraham can't have a son. I'm going to wait until Sarah's womb is as good as dead. I'm going to wait. Oh, I talked to you when she was able, and I talked to you when you still could produce, but it ain't going to happen until you can't produce and until she's dead, and you're going to have to believe me because this thing is going to be because I'm faithful. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't care what kind of promise God gave you. I don't care how you feel as though time has passed you by. There is a God that's able still. But what caused this woman? What caused this woman? What, what attracted Elisha? Now, who's Elisha? He's a man with a mantle. You know, Elijah went up, and I won't get into all that, but his mantle came down. 
Just like Jesus. How many know Jesus went up, but his ministry is still in the earth? Right. Now it's in a new body. It's in the many-membered body of Christ. These works shall you do. I go to be with the Father. I'm getting out of here. But the, come on. But the mandate is still going on. It's me through a new body. The mantle came down. And so Elisha now represents the anointing. He represents, because everything he did, he did by the anointing. He's the anointing. This is what he represents in this story. A story, And the anointing comes to Shunem, and there was a great woman, the Bible says. Now, when I say great, I don't know what she did. Was she great because she was rich? Was she great because she invented something? Was she great? It doesn't say, but I think I know what made her great. What made her great was what she did at the end of the story. In God's eyes, it's how she dealt with the anointing. So Elisha would come into town. He already had a reputation. My God, he has doubled the miracles of Elijah. So when he comes into town, people are taking days off. They said, hey, Elijah, her life, I've got to go see this man. Maybe he'll do a miracle in our family. There was no question. But there was one woman. One woman in the midst of all them that got this man's attention. One woman that, that put a demand that, that attracted the anointing. Hear me. First, she had to have an encounter with him. Everything starts with an initial encounter. If you never had an encounter with God, we're going to end in a few moments, you could have it today. Remember when you first encountered him? Remember, Al, we were talking years ago when God, in August, he encountered you. I was, I was there to see that encounter in your life. We were having special services, and God so got a hold of that man. People were praying for him. Remember that encounter that came when he passed by where you were? She had an encounter. The problem today is people are just satisfied with an encounter. And so they go here, they go there, they go everywhere, hoping to get another word, hoping to, come on. I know people, they're collectors of prophecies. Yeah, they are. They're collectors of prophecies. It's like years ago, people would collect stamps, and they'd fill their books up. Oh, look at this stamp. Look at that stamp. You know, if you were to put it on an envelope, it could send it somewhere. Yeah, your prophecy is not to be collected. It meant to send your life somewhere. It meant to send you into a trajectory to do the will of God. But she wasn't satisfied. I think other people had an encounter with Elisha because he came into Shunem and he would come to this town. But this one woman said, mm -mm, I'm not satisfied. I want him to eat at my table. So you know what she began to do? Step two, feed the anointing. She found out what he liked. And she told the husband, I know you like chicken, but the man likes fish. So tonight we're having flounder. Why? Because I got to have him at the table. I've got to break bread with him. Something came up in her heart in that encounter that caused her to not be able to not go deeper with him. So what did she begin to do? Feed him. You know what? You got to feed the anointing. You want the anointing to abide. You want that dove to stay parked on your life. You want to enter a situation and the environment changes because you showed up.
and because of your carrying something. This is what Jesus did. I mean, this is, this, he changed environments. He attended a funeral and the corpse followed him out the door. I mean, this guy, I mean, this is, can you imagine if he said, John, we got to go. Someone's that died. Peter said, man, let's go. It's going to be good tonight. I know that. Remember the last guy? He hopped out of that coffin and just followed him. He changed environments. Why? He had a dove. That dove changes things. The Holy Spirit, the anointing. So now when the man came in town, when the anointing would come in town, he went right to that house. 1720 K Street. We go, we're going, why are we going there? Because she feeds me. And we went from encounter to fellowship. And she learned to live in fellowship and communion with the Holy Spirit. Say, well, what does the Holy Spirit eat? I'll tell you what he eats. A surrendered life. And I'll tell you what else he eats. Obedience. And he gave the Holy Ghost, Acts chapter 5, to those who would obey him. Why do you think you got the Holy Ghost? I get the Holy Ghost. Not to speak in tongues. That's a byproduct. I got the Holy Ghost to be witnesses unto him. So I could obey because I need his power. She fed him. That was pretty good. But the more she ate with him, it gave birth to a greater desire. Now, one day, she's walking around the house. The husband said, what are you doing? Yeah, she said, we need to make some changes. Why? Because I need to have him live here. He needs to abide. Oh, but we eat with him every other week. Yeah, but I'm not satisfied. So we're going to take your man cave? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to renovate the house. Now notice, with every phase, with every phase of relationship, the cost becomes greater. Encounter, no cost. To feed them, a cost. To renovate the house, a cost. We're going to make whatever changes because now he's not going to just want to come here to eat. He's going to want to come here to stay. You know what that's called in biblical language? Repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is when the house gets renovated. It's not feeling guilty over the house. No. Repentance is when you say, okay, that room's got to change. That room's got to change. That room used to be this. It's not that anymore. Why? Because he's living in me. Now we change the house to accommodate the new resident. Here's the essence of abiding. I'm going to ask you a question. Are there any rooms the Holy Spirit's been dealing with in your life that need renovation? Is there any area in your life that needs to be changed? Because the dove, the dove desires to abide. And you've been wanting the dove to abide. 
But there's this one room. There's this area. Could renovate it today. Change the house. What she didn't know, she just wanted him. But what she didn't know, it was going to be the key that healed her barren condition. It didn't start out, excuse me, prophet, I'm barren. Do you have a word for me? I need to have a baby. Didn't know. The baby was the byproduct. It was the process that caused her to give birth to fruit. There's so many things in all of our lives. You know what that fruit is? That fruit is God's will. That fruit is God's calling. That fruit, you don't have to worry about. The branch doesn't, you know, oh, an apple. No, no, the branch just has to abide. The branch just has to stay plugged in. Let nothing sever itself from the vine, from that trunk. Because coursing where you know I sees is this life flow. And as long as the branch stays abiding into the life, eventually hanging on the branch will be all manner of fruit. And it becomes a fruitful branch. And the Father is glorified. Jesus said you could sum it all up. I just want God to be glorified. How many want your life to glorify God? Yeah. And we immediately think that. We say that. I believe it. But we immediately think of what am I supposed to do to glorify God? Jesus summed it up. He made it easy. Herein is the Father glorified. That you bear much fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Therefore, abide in me as the branch abides in the vine. So shall you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples.